TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Sea Shepherd Panel, Impact of Climate Change on Marine Wildlife. With Sea Shepherd founder Paul Watson, Mike Baun and Timus Smith. Paul Watson was co-founder of Greenpeace and led the campaigns against the slaughter of baby seals in the late 70s. When Patrick Moore became president of Greenpeace Canada, he halted direct action and forced Watson out. Moore later became a spokesperson for Monsanto and the nuclear industry. And Paul Watson founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in 1977. That's a nonprofit marine conservation organization based on San Juan Island, Washington, in the U.S. Their method is listed as direct action. And when asked to be more specific, Paul Watson calls it aggressive nonviolence. And he explains what that means in the interview you are about to hear. Best known for their protection of whales in confrontations with Russian, Norwegian, and Japanese fleets, Sea Shepherd have defended dolphins, seals, sharks, penguins, turtles, fish, krill, and aquatic birds from poaching, unsustainable fishing, and habitat destruction. They say, we have to halt the destruction of life in our ocean, for if life in the ocean dies, we all die. End quote. Conversely, protecting the ocean is the best method to prevent climate collapse. Over four decades after its founding, Sea Shepherd has become a global organization with a fleet of 12 ships and chapters all over the world. Mike Baun and Timus Smith are associated with the most recently established chapter in Portugal. Mike is media coordinator and Timer a marine biologist. Both are vessel veterans of the Vaquita campaign. That's one of Sea Shepherd's ongoing campaigns to save the critically endangered vaquita porpoise in Mexico's upper gulf of California. Since 2015, Sea Shepherd has been working with Mexican authorities and leading researchers to save the vaquita by removing the illegal fishing gear that plagues the vaquita refuge which is a UNESCO-recognized and federally protected area in which gillnet fishing is banned. In that six-year effort, Sea Shepherd ships have also been rammed, shot at, and boarded, and their decks set on fire by Mexican crime gangs who retaliated after losing their gear and their harvest. But it would be wrong to describe Sea Shepherd as victim Their crews have arrested poachers and chased vessels back into their home ports. They document their actions and collect and preserve evidence, turning that material over to authorities for prosecution. And there are now many examples of Sea Shepherd assisting small nations that have no navy or coast guard to confront the international vessels that plunder their territorial waters. 
In international waters, Sea Shepherd operates under the World Charter for Nature that lays out how nature shall be respected. The Charter was adopted by United Nations members in 1982 with 111 yes votes and 18 abstentions. The sole no vote came from the United States. On June 21st, Micah Baun from Sea Shepherd Portugal organized a Zoom call to discuss the urgent topic of how climate change is impacting the oceans and how we can protect life on land by saving the ocean. Micah begins by asking Paul Watson to introduce himself. My name is Paul Watson, and in 1977, I uh, established Sea Shepherd with a strategy of um, aggressive nonviolence, which means that we're going to be aggressive, but we're not going to hurt anybody. And uh, we don't protest. We intervene to stop primarily illegal activities uh, on the high seas, uh, protecting everything from uh, phytoplankton to to the great whales. And today we've uh, now developed a a situation where we have partnerships with governments around the world, especially in Latin America and Africa, where we assist uh, with uh, (coughs) anti-poaching interventions And uh, at the same time, we continue to operate outside of territorial limits uh, under the guidance of the United Nations uh, Charter for Nature, which allows for non-government organizations to uphold international conservation law. So Sea Shepherd Portugal is part of Sea Shepherd Global. Here in Portugal, we started our chapter around one and a half years ago, a bit more maybe, and grew a great network of volunteers in such a short amount of time because we are a fairly new chapter, one of the newest actually. And yeah, we have to, uh, like our volunteers help us to defend, conserve and protect our marine wildlife here in Portugal. Um, quickly to my role and in Sea Shepherd Portugal, I'm working on creating awareness for Sea Shepherd here in the country. And since we are fairly new, we want to make people aware of the need for marine conservation and the situation that we're actually facing here in Portugal, because people might not think in Europe, it's such a big need for marine conservation, but this is wrong. (laughs) So I basically educate from like elementary school kids up to university um, students on marine conservation and sustainable living. I coordinate different media activities for Sea Shepherd Portugal and plan events like this and speak on events like this uh, on behalf of our beautiful ocean. And of course, I help out with cleanups and uh, beach cleanups and dive cleanups. Um, The dive cleanups are very, very important as well because uh, 30% of the fish are getting caught in those ghost, like ghost nets or abandoned fishing nets, which we're taking out of the ocean. And also 10% of the marine debris in the ocean is being caught in these ghost nets. So it's really, really important to take them out and whatever marine wildlife is still alive Um, get them out and set them free. But unfortunately, that's rarely the case that they are still alive. Also, we started our very, very first campaign here in uh, Portugal, which we're really proud of, the Sentinella campaign. The campaign aims to solve the bycatch problem here in Portugal, which is pretty severe because uh, also here in Portugal, a lot of uh, bycatch, which is fish and animals that are not actually targeted by the fishing action, but are collateral damage, basically, that is being washed onto shore because it gets entangled in the nets and then the fishermen cut them out and just let them to die or they're already dead and then they get washed onto shore and we collect the data. And we have a big database already to then eventually go to the municipality and try to re 
enforce different fishing activities in Portugal. Um, to explain the context and the correlation of climate change and the marine life uh, further and to show the impact of climate change on our existence on, on this planet, and uh, we will talk to Paul in time now. So thank you again for being here. And um, I think I'm just going to start with the first question for Paul. So, Paul, uh, could you tell us a bit more about the massive impact uh, climate change has on our oceans and the inhabitants? At the COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, I proposed a solution. Of course, wasn't going to be taken very seriously by the world governments, but there is a solution to uh, climate change. And it's a simple one. We just need to leave the ocean alone. We need to allow the ocean the opportunity to repair the damage that we've done to it because the ocean is the climate regulator. One of the ways I like to explain this is if you look at the, uh, this planet as a spaceship, which is what it is really, we're on this incredible voyage around the galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides the air we breathe and the food we eat and regulates climate and temperature. And uh, that life support system is, is run and maintained by a crew, a crew of living things. Not us. We're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves, but we're not crew. But what we are doing is murdering crew members at an incredible rate. And there's only so many crew members you can destroy before the machinery begins to fall apart, to break down. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, we need a global moratorium on all industrialized corporate fishing operations for at least 50 years. We need to stop the dumping of plastics and chemicals. We need to end noise pollution in the ocean. We have to allow the ocean that opportunity to repair the damage that we, we've done to it. And that is really the only, the only solution. We're not going to solve it through technology. We're not going to solve it through politics. It has to be very simple, leave the ocean alone and allow it to repair the damage that we've done to it. That's very true. And especially nowadays, we can see how quickly it could actually have an impact on the ocean if we just leave it alone. During COVID, we have seen so many positive changes, of course, also negative ones, but we could see that this amazing vast ecosystem has the power to literally change to get healthy in like such a short amount of time, it's time, it's incredible. So um, yeah, that's that leads me to the next question for time actually. So why is everything in the ocean so important to keep the ecosystem alive and healthy? How can uh, the effect on the smallest organism or fish or animal um, caused by raising water temperatures, um, the rise of sea level or currents also have a massive impact on the biggest whale or great white or you name it? Well, actually, that's a very good question. This is actually what I have been studying all my life, because why everything is so interconnected in the ocean has many possible answers, okay? But each one of them are more interesting than the last. The connectivity there is enormous. And changes that occur on one side of the planet can affect the other in a matter of weeks. The change in physical conditions that is affecting the waters is modulating so many parameters right now at the same time that it's almost impossible to determine what the long-term effect will be. Today, we can already observe many things of what is happening. A very clear example, if you're looking into physicals, it's the changing currents. And the water column is roughly organized into hot water above, 
which is less dense, and cold water below. Um, what are the nutrients that remain buried in the depths of the ocean rise again and can be available again to organisms that live near the surface depends on whether the water can mix and then the temperatures vary enough through the year for the water above to cool down and let the water below rise. This phenomenon feeds billions of organisms a year, creating large blooms that allow small animals to eat phytoplankton, slightly larger animals to eat these smaller animals, and so on, sharks killer whales, dolphins, whales. Uh, this group, in fact, the, the whales, is one of those that will be greatly affected by global warming. And they will be affected by the redirection, and they are already being affected by it, redirection of current, which have been guiding them to their places of breeding, gathering, or feeding for hundreds of generations, and which, when changing, can lead them to lose their way, as well as to lose more energy from the expected in their migrations. Other examples would be the penguins that normally are feed in the current that surrounds the Antarctic Ocean. This current is going further and further away from the coast, leading the penguins to go in a travel that they will never know if they can survive or coming back and uh, bringing enough food for the layer and the family to, to feed and to grow and to survive. So everything that we do in our days it's extremely important to understand how is it all connected and how we are a part of it and not the dominant of it. Yeah, and that's a really good note. Yeah, we have to learn to live with our environment and not against it, which we have done for a long, long time. And now it's finally time to change that and become aware of our actions and the consequences. So um, that also leads me to the next question for Paul. Could you give us uh, some more in-depth information about the issues we humans are facing um, due to climate change? I think one of the most uh, daunting problems is the fact that since 1950, we've seen a 40% a diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air that we breathe, much more so than plants and trees on land. If phytoplankton uh, disappears, we do too. We don't survive on this planet without phytoplankton. Life as we know it ceases uh, to, to exist. Unfortunately, for the most part, people aren't even aware that phytoplankton exists. <laughs> and so uh, I think we need, certainly have to educate the general public as just how important that is. There are many reasons for the diminishment of phytoplankton, uh, climate change being one of them, but also the diminishment of uh, whales and dolphins and seabirds, because these species provide the nutrients for the phytoplankton, primarily nitrogen and iron, and uh, help with uh, bringing the, those nutrients up from the depths to the surface. And so the, in many ways, the whales and the dolphins are like the farmers of the ocean. And uh, so when we diminish them, we diminish uh, the phytoplankton. In fact, there's three basic laws of ecology that every species must adhere to. And if they don't, they will go extinct. And the first is the law of diversity, the understanding that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. The second is the law of interdependence, that all of those species are interdependent with each other. And the third is the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity. And when one species steals the carrying capacity of other species, that leads to diminishment of both diversity and interdependence. And unfortunately, our species, 
the year I was born in 1950, there were 3 billion humans and now there's close to 8 billion. So we're stealing more and more carrying capacity from more and more species. And that's something that is just simply not sustainable. And we're also seeing that, uh, I think this year, we've seen that the parts per million of uh, carbon CO2 has risen over 415 parts per million. That's pretty much close to what it was at the beginning of the Permian extinction 250 million years ago. Now, the five major extinction events that have happened in the history of the planet, pretty much all of them were caused by uh, climate change. But the reasons for that climate change were everything from asteroid uh, collisions to uh, uh, volcanic eruptions and massive coal burnings in Siberia, which caused by uh, volcanic activity. But this is uh, the sixth extinction, the Anthropocene, and it's being caused by uh, one species, our species, that is releasing so much of this uh, CO2. And in addition to the diminishment of phytoplankton, providing a, uh, oxygen to life, is that phytoplankton is a, a major sequester of CO2. So when you diminish phytoplankton, you also diminish the ability to sequester CO2. Yeah, that is true. And it's actually really horrific to think about that we are the only species that is making the planet collapse. And we are the only species that planet could live without, but we could not live without the planet. So it's I think also, though, you have, we have to address the real problem. And that real problem is our way of looking at the world. This idea that we're better than everything, that yeah. we're above everything, that we're dominant over everything. And we have to uh, adapt a policy of biocentrism, that we're part of everything, and that what affects one affects the other. And unless we learn to live in harmony and respect other species, we're simply not going to survive. Yeah, we have to understand that the planet and animals are not here to serve us, but to live in harmony with us. And this is unfortunately not uh, there yet for everyone, but um, yeah, that's what we have to learn. And this is totally right. I totally agree. Um, so that also leads me to another question for Taima. Um, so nature in general uh, works together. If like land or sea, everything has to be basically in balance to function properly. Can you tell us a bit about natural events or disasters on land that can be related to uh, changes in the ocean caused by the climate change? Actually, climate change is already affecting humans at many levels today. Um, I'm sure we all have realized that the seasons are no longer as reliable as they used to be. At the same time, a couple of years ago happened what is considered to be the first hurricane in the Mediterranean, which makes the urgency of the situation even clearer. Uh, global warming has increased the probability of a hurricane reaching category three by 8% each decade. These changes will soon lead to a rise in sea levels that is expected to be the cause of a global catastrophe, leading to billions of people having to leave their homes and become climate refugees. Uh, therefore, it is essential, as Paul said, that to preserve the sea, apart from buffering the Earth's temperature, the seas are part particular uh, carbonite vacuum cleaner, so to speak. So um, the more we clean it and the more we keep it safe, the better for us also. So the change in the conditions of the ocean, its temperature and pH above all are leading to the destruction of the marine trophic chains, which can destabilize a balance that has been the sustenance of our beautiful and blowish planet for billions of years. So as Paul said, and I love this quote, uh, if ocean dies, we die. So. 
Yeah, and that is actually true. I mean, there's nothing to argue about it. If the ocean dies, we die. Like we've heard a lot of uh, inside information about that. And we have to take care of the ocean because the ocean actually provides us with life on this planet. And that's why I'm really great that we're here to like take these insights to the majority. Um, so Paul, you, we have kind of like talked about it that we have to change our behavior and leave nature and the oceans alone. But do you think that actually the habits of or the behavior of an individual or all people could make a difference in climate change? Or is it only the big industries that have to change in order to make a change like the oil industry or fishing industry? Or yeah, can we as individuals make a change? And if so, how do you think that could happen? Well, the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. Therefore, the strength of uh, any movement has to be in diversity. So that can range uh, from individuals to corporations to governments. Uh, individuals are, are more inclined to uh, make changes. Uh, I think all, all the passion, the courage, and the imagination of individuals is what changes the world. And whether that uh, uh, that approach is uh, through education or litigation or legislation or through direct interventions, uh, it, it all works towards uh, this, the same end. But uh, how do we get governments to change? Unfortunately, politicians are very reluctant to change unless they know they're going to uh, be supported by the, the population in order to do it, because politics is called the art of the possible, which means that they're not going to do anything unless they know they're going to get, uh, get support from that. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but I do believe that uh, there's two choices. We either adapt and address this in a constructive um, way or else the laws of nature <clears throat> kick in and um, and uh, dictate what the outcome is going to be. And that's not going to be very pleasant for us. You know, there's so many things that are involved. In, in 1995, uh, Lori Garrett wrote a book called The Coming Plague. And she predicted that there would be emerging zoonomic viruses, as well as the release of uh, pathogens from melting permafrost. And uh, most of this was ignored. We, uh, you know, there was uh, AIDS and Ebola and MERS and SARS and West Nile and Hantavirus and so many, and Zika. And we didn't really pay that much attention to it overall because, well, it didn't affect all of us. Now with COVID-19, it was global and most importantly affected Europeans and Americans. And so and suddenly everybody's sitting up and taking notice. But unfortunately, this is a harbinger of things to come. We're not going to solve this through vaccines. We're only going to solve this through addressing the root cause. And that means we have to stop the diminishment of ecosystems. We have to stop the diminishment of species because Viruses, there's hundreds of millions of viruses, and every plant and animal has viruses associated with it, which are beneficial to the most part. But when you reduce and diminish a, a species or an ecosystem, the viruses associated have to go somewhere. And 8 billion of us is a pretty attractive host. So a lot of viruses associated with animal life, which is close to us, are going to jump. And uh, they're going to jump to us, and we're going to have to deal with that. So if we don't address this, then there's going to be more and more viral outbreaks, and they're going to be worse than the ones before. And we, we have to accept that as a reality. Uh, really, when you think about it, who rules this planet? It's not us. It's not even the higher mammals. It's the pathogens. It's the viruses. It's the microbes. 
this is what defines life on this planet. And uh, we either exist with them or they will change things overall to their benefit and oblivious to whatever our concerns are. Yeah, and it's actually um, very clear that all the pandemics lead back to our behavior towards animal and nature. And this should be very, very eye-opening for everyone. And it's a fact that cannot be denied anymore. It's cannot, like you cannot look away from it anymore because it's now affecting all of us. We have reached this point. Um, that's why I would like to ask you, Timer, what you think. Um, do you think the COVID situation has changed the point of view of the majority regarding sustainability and ocean conservation? I really think it has, yeah, because people now uh, can see that the catastrophe that we are living in are not affecting only one part of the planet or only one species or only one kind of environmental balance that we live in. And catastrophes like this, but a little care of the environment, I am afraid they have only just begun, as Paul just said. From what I have seen around me and in media, it's possible that having reached such a radical state of alarm has made certain people reconsider, especially about their use of energy, plastics and the diet, because eating wild animals is not the only thing that can lead to a ruin. I mean, our way of supplying ourselves without limits from sea that, yes, has a limit, it's not sustainable, no reasonable. So, so we have to yeah. stop playing God and, and start realizing the pressure that we are putting on nature. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, what are your thoughts? Do you think we've already reached a point of no return or can we still turn this whole climate crisis and climate change around? I don't think that we have any choice but to do everything that we can to try and address uh, the problem. It's either that or die. <laughs> but um, I don't really worry about the future and I'll tell you why. Uh, many years ago, I had uh, an experience which has stayed with me all my life and I was a, a medic for the American Indian movement during the occupation of a place called Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And uh, we were surrounded by uh, federal agents who were shooting at us, uh, about 20,000 rounds a night, and they wounded 46 and killed two. And I went to Russell Means, the leader of the American Indian Movement, and I said, look, we can't win here. The odds against us are overwhelming. It's impossible. And he said, uh, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right time to do it, and the right thing to do. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. What you do in the present will define what the future will be. And that's really all the power that you have is to focus on the present. And that's what we have to do, I think. And uh, when people say, well, the problem is impossible to solve, well, then the answer is to find the impossible solution. And uh, I always cite the example of Nelson Mandela in 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would become president of South Africa is unthinkable, impossible. And yet the impossibility became, became possible. So uh, we should never get depressed. We should never get frustrated. We simply should put our energies into doing everything that we can to address the situation in the present. That was Paul Watson founder in 1977 of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. With a fleet of 12 ships and chapters all over the world, they are protecting life in the ocean from poaching, unsustainable fishing, and habitat destruction. For more information, look up the website of seashepherd.org. 
That's seashepherdoneword.org. You heard excerpts from a 35-minute panel held on June 21st, 2021, with Paul Watson, Micah Bowne, and Timus Smith. The film is posted on YouTube under the title The Impact of Climate Change on Marine Life. Paul Watson most recently is the author of Urgent, Save Our Ocean to Survive Climate Change, published by Groundswell Books in September 2021. For more on that book, come back when TUC Radio returns. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.